0: Isn't it interesting that we human beings require so many rules? We really do. We really do make them, and we live by them or try to. And I think that the reason for that is because, in a lot of ways, we need them. As a youth pastor, an important part of of youth group, and one of my favorite parts of youth group, was to uh, kind of begin by having fun with the students, and we would always start with a game. And one of the best games for us was any kind of hiding game. We'd play this game called Sardines, where one person would hide and, and then everyone would look for them, and if you found them you're supposed to kind of hide with them. It was a it was a neat game and it's really great in this church because there are so many great places to hide inside of Calvary. And in fact, Ben Grove, I don't know if anyone has ever found you when you've been the one In charge of hiding, he has some spot that none of us know exists, and he uh, he gets away with that every time. But when we got ready to to play this game, we would always we realized very early on that we had to give some rules. And what do I mean by that? I mean you have to say where you're not allowed to hide. You might think, for example, that a young male student might know offhand he ought not hide in the girls' bathroom, but we would hear, you didn't say we couldn't, or the elevator, right? Uh, we had a student that discovered at one point that if they got in the elevator and just pressed it up a little bit from the inside, nobody could get to them. So they could wave and everything, but uh, uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't actually get to them, and we had to then say, no hiding in the elevator, no hiding outside, no leaving when you're supposed to be hiding Right. Eventually, we would say something like, if I wouldn't like it, you're not allowed to do it. <laughs> but those rules become very, very necessary. So we, have, we human beings have a terrible need for rules. And that's reflected by the Ten Commandments, which we're, we're getting into today. God's people are, are at the foot of his mountain. And as he communicates in covenants with them, the first bit of instruction he has for them are these ten rules. Now, we know that that's not it, right? There are many, many more commands given in Scripture than these ten. Ten rules isn't going to do it. We need more guidance than that. We need more limits than that. But there's a problem there, too. We need those principles because... You can't make a rule for everything. For example, some things are unpredictable. Like we know that we should not steal. But nowhere in Scripture is there a command to not do the opposite thing, right? Like stealing is taking something from someone without their permission. And the opposite of that might be giving something to someone without their permission. And there's a story going on right now I need to tell you about that brings me so much joy and delight. So there's a picture these are uh, these are flamingos that Pastor Ben has uh, has put in his and Matthew have put in their bushes in front of their house. They're orange and black. They're Washington colors and Halloween colors, and I thought that that was fun. That picture was taken at the Popcorn Outreach, and uh, uh, since then, somebody and I just love this so much <laughs> has decided without permission to increase the collection of flamingos in Pastor Ben and Matthew's bushes. And I guess it started with one or two, and now is up to... Six. Six. What's great about that is that um, we don't know for sure who is doing it. But I did want to say that if you can't get a good look at those flamingos, I have one right here, that if you need to come up afterwards and see a little closer, uh, we're going to move right along. See, there's no rule that says you're not supposed to do that, right? So how could I possibly have known? Oh, Ben, it has brought me such great delight. (laughs) Such great delight. Uh, So this morning, we're covering the first... Oh, happy Pastor Appreciation Month, Pastor Ben. Uh, We are covering the first four commandments. And as we do that, as we do that... Uh, I do want to give you our single sentence sermon summary for today. We could just be done, couldn't we? That was just, that was just good. Uh, the, fir- the sentence su- summary today is this. Your heart will find rest when your life becomes God-focused. Your heart will find rest when your life becomes God-focused. So... Here's the, uh, here's the story with God's people at this point. Not long ago, as we get into Exodus 20, where we find the Ten Commandments, and I would encourage you to turn there with me. God's people have had quite the run. Not long ago, there were slaves in Egypt, crying out and asking God, please come and rescue us, and he did. After 400 years, God comes and delivers them. The Israelites saw the ten plagues take the most powerful nation in the world and bring them low. They were released by Pharaoh and they were guided by a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke, a constant manifestation of God's presence guiding them where they should go. And then, after they were led to the Red Sea, in a place where they absolutely could not retreat. No matter how afraid they became, they could not run because there was nowhere to run to. Pharaoh's army catches up to them, and they're in an impossible situation. The Israelites cannot defeat Pharaoh's army, and the Israelites cannot run, and so God shows that even the impossible is no difficulty for him as he parts the sea and drowns Pharaoh's army. This is a God who is powerful everywhere. Gods at the time were believed to be powerful in small places, in their lands. But this God has power everywhere. And this is a God who protects his people. At the time, gods were believed to be very temperamental, very fickle. If you made them angry, if you upset them in any way, they could abandon you or even turn and harm you. But this is a God who steadfastly, protects his people. He's a God who doesn't get angry and abandon them and that's true even when they doubt him. That's true even when they grumble. He doesn't leave them, instead he provides for them. They say we're hungry and thirsty as though God didn't know they were going to get hungry and thirsty in the desert. They say we're going to die and he provides for them. He brings them victory in battle. This is an amazing God. And finally, at the end of this journey, the Israelites arrive at the mountain of God, at Mount Sinai. We have a picture of what's believed to be that mountain or one of the possibilities. It's a, it's a mountain in the vicinity of Egypt. And based on descriptions and tradition, we believe that this is Mount Sinai. It's the same place, we think, where Moses had encountered God in a burning bush. This is the mountain of God. And you can imagine the relief and excitement as the Israelites have been on this incredible, terrifying journey through the desert, seeing God bring victory after victory after victory, bringing them to this place, and finally they arrive. And so they camp, and Moses, as he's prone to do, goes off to speak with God. And and through Moses, the Lord proposes to Israel. He offers them a covenant, a covenant relationship. And he says, if you will be my people, if you'll commit to following my commands, then you'll be my treasured possession. You'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So then, then, Uh, God tells Moses to have the Israelites wash themselves and become as clean as they can be because he's actually going to like descend upon them. So for three days, they wash in every way that they can. They purify everything they can. They make themselves as absolutely clean and pure as possible. Exodus 19, verses 16 through 19, describes what happens next. On the morning of the third day, This is what it looks like when God comes to his people. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. After all this time, they're about to meet Their God. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood there at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The mountain was on fire. That is a big mountain, and it was lit aflame. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. And then the Lord gives them ten commandments. My goodness, what an entrance. It's a thing that no one there ever forgot. How could you possibly ever forget it? Now, I mentioned earlier that we're only going to be looking at the first four commandments today. And that we're, we're I, I want to tell you, we're going to really zero in on on one of them. And that's, that's very hard for me. We're going to very, heaven help us, very briefly look at the first three and zero in on the fourth, because I think it's the one that sums up the first three. And that might sound strange to you, but I'm curious, if you're looking at your Bible, that's cheating. Does anyone know the first four commandments in order? I'll be very, very impressed if you do. There's the first four commandments. Does anyone know them in order? And is anyone willing to be known as the person who knows the first four commandments in order? What's one of them? Tell me the first one. No gods before me. What's the second one? No idols. What's the third one? oh my goodness, people, (laughs) do not take the, I'm sorry, okay, do not misuse the name of the Lord, and the fourth one is remember the Sabbath, and keep it holy, remember the Sabbath, everybody needs to take out their personal Bibles, and put a little mark in Exodus 20, and you, you need to read that. But we're going to dive into these. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. These are the words God says before he gives the first one. It's the prologue. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Before the first commandment, God gives this prologue, this umbrella statement. I'm Yahweh, your God. But that your Doesn't mean what it sounds like. He doesn't say, he's not saying that that at this point he's assuming that they're, uh, they're committed to him, although they have. That's not what that word means. What he's doing is he's promising something else. He's about to tell them what he expects from them, but that word your means I'm yours. You understand the difference, right? You're mine. And the ten commands that are coming coming next are going to show that. But first, you need to know this. Israel, I'm yours. It's not just that they belong to God. He's committed Himself to them. They're His and He's theirs. And that's a powerful and important way to begin the Ten Commandments. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. It's easy to misunderstand what that word before means. Because before can have two meanings, right? If something happens before something else, it's like this this time thing. It's what what came right beforehand. But there's another meaning for the word before. And it means in front of, physically. Physically. And that's what this word means. The best translation would be something like this. You shall have no other gods in my face. I think that's literally what the Hebrew says. Or before my face. In other words, in the ancient world, they worshipped gods by finding graven images of them. You would make a little statue and carve an image of the god into that statue. And then you would would have that statue before you and you would worship it. And the, the, the thing of it is, that statue wasn't just a statue to you. This image of that God was a symbol of that God's very presence. You believed that the God you were worshiping was there because of the little statue that you had before you. And you also expected something else. You expected that that God would use... He would be there and he would work through that statue, right? His power or her power would be present there and the God would work through it. And God is saying, you will not have any of these little statues before me. You're not going to bring them into the place of worship. You're not going to worship me and them. You're not going to combine these things, In other words, Israel, you don't get any other husbands. It's you and me and no other gods are allowed. And then the second commandment builds on the first one. He says this. The second commandment is, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them. Or worship them. And this means two things. First, it means I'm not just saying you can't bring those, those little statues into my presence. I'm saying you don't get to make them at all. It's not like you get to worship me and then hidden in a closet somewhere, you can have an affair with another god. This covenant, Israel's is between you and me. But then he says something else. He says, you're not to make any image. And that includes of him. He's telling them not to make a carved image of him. There's an important reason for that. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But then we come to the third command. You will not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And he's referring to the name Yahweh that he had given to Moses a short time beforehand. Now, there's some things that we know he doesn't mean by this. This is not some kind of gotcha legalistic rule where if you slipped up or coughed or sneezed in the middle of saying God's name, you were in trouble. That doesn't appear to be what this is about. They were not to say anything false about God's name. In other words, they weren't to attribute anything to him that wasn't true. He wants to be known by them. And that means that it's important that they don't muddy the waters. No gossiping about God. And they weren't to use his name to curse anyone. To presume that they could decide who was in a good standing or a bad standing with him. It wasn't theirs to do. You don't get to take Yahweh's name and use it against Someone else. This name is not supposed to be played with or treated simply. It's supposed to be given great care because this name, Yahweh, means I am. It's where God reveals himself as the principle of all existence. Everything else is created but him. He makes, sustains, holds together everything. You don't play around with that name. Consequently, we don't, we don't really feel the need to follow this in the same way that they did. And I, wanna, I want you to hear me. That's okay. Jesus comes and he fulfills the law. The name Yahweh doesn't need to be protected by us in the same way it did by them. Now, that does not mean Hear me, that does not mean you should say things that aren't true about him or that you should use him to curse others. But we have songs where we take that name and we change it, right? For the sake of rhyme. Or the name of God, the Son, Jesus. Literally, no sound in the name Jesus is accurate. The name is Yeshua. Like, all the sounds in the name Jesus are incorrect. And I want you to know, that's okay. It's this process over 2,000 years from language to language. We get this word Jesus, and I'm not telling you that's bad. When you say that name, he knows you're talking to him, and he responds with love and a smile. What I'm telling you is that this is not a command to legalism about the name of God. If it was, we'd have to scrap like half of the songs that we sing. But then comes the fourth commandment. And and I think that this is the one more than the other three that for us today can, can be profoundly important for the way that we view and worship God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. To get a really good picture of the Sabbath, I think, I think we need to take a step back. The Sabbath is based on the fact that God rested On the seventh day of creation. The beginning of Genesis chapter 2 tells us that he created in six days and then he rests. Now I think that's really important. I want to say here at the beginning, uh, it may sound in a moment like I'm saying something terrible. And I promise that I'm not. Hang with me. And afterwards, if if you want to talk about it, you are welcome to, uh, to grab me and I'd love to do that. This is important. God never does something without a reason. Every action of God in Scripture is taken for a profound reason. Every act of power, every single miracle reflects God's desire to be known. He wants you to know him. He loves you. He knows you better than you will ever know yourself, better than you could ever know another person. He knows you through and through, and he wants you to know him. So when he acts in powerful ways, whether it's to to part the Red Sea or to heal a man born blind, he's doing it to reveal something about himself. He wants covenant relationship, and that's as true in the covenant Creation account as it is all through the rest of scripture. So it it brings up an interesting question. Why does God create in six days and rest on the seventh? A lot of people have said that it's because he's showing his power. And I want you to hear me. I think that the reason is not that, but so, so much better than that. You see, if if we think that God is, is creating in six days to show us how powerful he is, because who could create the universe in six days? We still have a really big problem. Why did God take six days to do it? Because I believe that God could create everything that there is with less than a thought in a single moment. So why drag it on for six days? And more than that, I don't think God gets tired. So why Did he rest? I don't think it was to show his power. I think that the reason is so, so much better than that. Remember, God's miracles always point to who he is. In the ancient world, there was a practice. When you made a temple for a god, you did it in six stages. And then... After those stages were done, the last thing you did is you put up this image of the God in the temple. And when you put up his image, the idea was that that God was was going to to rest there. He was going to dwell there. He was going to be about taking care of his people or all the things that that God was doing as an activity that happened after that final stage of setting up a temple. You'd place the statue, the God was there, and He'd dig in. And the word they used for that was the God resting in the temple. So, I think this gives us a little bit of an important piece about what's going on in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God isn't just creating the universe, He's creating a temple. He's creating a place that he intends to dwell. Now, in that last stage in the ancient world of of setting up a temple, when you you would bring an image or a statue of the god into that temple, that image or statue was meant to do two things, like we said earlier. The first thing is it represented the presence of that god. You believed that because of that, image being present in the temple. It was a sign that that God was really there. And more than that, somehow he was uniquely present in that image and worked through it. That's why you'd go there to worship. That's why you'd go there to ask for things. And that's why you believe that there was a holy space That that God would work in and around. And what that tells us is something else that's really important about why God said, you will not make any images, not of other gods and not of me, because there was already an image of God in his temple. The end of Genesis chapter 1, God creates Adam and Eve and he makes them in his image. You see, there isn't a, a statue of God that has a a unique way to show that he's present and real. And there's not a statue of God that we go to because that's where he's going to be working through. You and I provide both of those functions. We are the ones made in his image. These false gods got statues. Our God's images walk and talk and create and live and are meant to serve And obey him. Even at the very beginning, mankind was meant to be God's hands and feet to affect the world. So here in the Sabbath, right, we have this this last day where God has created this temple. All of creation is God's temple and then he rests in it. And it's not because he's tired. It's that because that's the, that's the indwelling of the temple. That's God coming and being in it and rolling up his sleeves and getting ready to get to work. And so, God's people are called to the Sabbath and the Ten Commandments. God rested, and now you rest. Why? I think because it's a reminder that we worship a God who's near. He's here. He's not far away. When you pray, you don't pray to a God who is distant. You pray to a God who's here. And we worship a God who's involved. You never go a single moment of your life without the presence of God really and truly being there. In your greatest moment, in your worst, in your harshest temptations and trials, He's there. Sustaining, encouraging you, calling you to Him. And in your greatest moment of of joy and triumph, He's there. Celebrating with you. We worship a God who's near, who's involved. And the Sabbath was to be a reminder of those two things. And God's people are called to rest. And they're told that that rest means not doing any work. The reason for that is because on the Sabbath they were supposed to develop a God focus. That word rest in the fourth commandment means Focus on something. It was a restorative word. It was a, a plugging into word, right? It's a thing that you had to stop in order to do. They were to develop a God focus. Because they, de- they had these first three commandments, right? There's no God before him, no images, don't misuse his name. He wants them to connect deeply to him, and so the Sabbath is a day every week in the rhythm of life where they tap back into, they're reminded of their faith, their faith is made fresh again, and then they were supposed to wait, because remember, remember that idea, God, the God would rest on the, the seventh stage, right, the the image would get put in, and, and God would rest, and what came next? The God would get to work. Well, this Sabbath is, is, a, is a call to rest, to, to focus on God for the Israelites because God promises to get to work. Now, the Jews believed very, right from the very beginning that there was going to be something new, something different, that eventually God was going to change the game. They were waiting for God to send a savior, right? To rescue, to establish a kingdom that would never end. The Sabbath was this this moment, this time to, to rest in that hope, to remember God, for our faith to be encouraged, but then to look forward to the day when God would do something brand new. God is still working in creation. And they were waiting to see what he'd do. Sorry, I got excited and I skipped a whole bunch of my... I read my notes to you instead of reading them from here. So, one thing that's interesting is all the other ten commandments you can find repeated in the New Testament. All of them. But you can't find a command for the Sabbath. Why? Why? In fact, even more than that, it seems like every time Jesus is actually, literally, every time Jesus interacts with the Sabbath, right? All through the Gospels, story after story, when Jesus shows up on a Sabbath, he's doing one of two things. He's either teaching, he does that twice, or he's breaking it. I mean, they go out of the way to show Jesus breaking the Sabbath again and again and again and again, and the question is... Why? This was important, right? A day to focus and rest and and, and plug back in to be reminded about God. That's important. Why is Jesus breaking it all the time? Well, let me tell you what he's not doing. He is not saying you don't need a day of rest. He's not saying you don't need a day to reflect and focus and and feed your soul and connect more deeply with Him. He's not saying that you should not put a day of the week aside to devote to Him. He's not saying you need to stop doing that. He's saying something else. He's saying that the Sabbath was meant to point us toward a time when He was going to do something amazing. And Jesus is saying the fulfillment of that promise, the time the Sabbath pointed to, is now. Jesus fulfills the Sabbath. He's the fulfillment of it. He's the one it was always pointing to in the first place. So then what does that mean for you and for me? That means that we're living in a time when God's Spirit is active in a way it never was before. When Jesus left and the Holy Spirit came and the church was born, God is at work through his people in a way that the world had never seen before. We're living in an exciting time. Yes, we live in a world that is still ruled and and oppressed by the evil one. Yes, we're living lives where we're going to have struggles and difficulty and pain, but we're also living in the world where God's Spirit is active and powerful and moving, where people are coming to him every single day, where the church is feeding the hungry and caring for the sick, where God uses us to do amazing things. We're living in an exciting time. So, how do we celebrate this Sabbath? What does that mean practically? Right, we could say amen to that, right? We're we're living in a wonderful time, but but what what do we do with this command today? Does it mean anything to us? And the answer is yes. You know, the Sabbath originally was Saturday, it was the last day of the week. But Christians moved it. And they didn't just move it because they didn't want to be mistaken for the Jews. They didn't move it because they wanted to be Distinct. They did it for a very important reason. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, he tells the church there to be busy about collecting money on the first day of the week. The Lord's Day is referred to in the book of Revelation, and it means the first day of the week. Why? Because remember, the God would rest. And then what would He do? He'd get to work the day after the last day of the week, right? We start a week over, but what if we didn't? What if it was an eighth day? It'd be this time where we expected to see God at work, God moving, God changing, God redeeming. And that's why Christians moved from Saturday to Sunday. It was a reminder that their God was at work in powerful, amazing ways. So, how do we celebrate the Sabbath? The, important, the, the, the most important answer is this. You celebrate the Sabbath in whatever way God convicts you, encourages you to do so. Is it good to have a Sabbath rest? The answer to that is absolutely yes. One of the things I, I wanted, to, I wanted to, to bring this to light in part because I grew up in a time, I think, and, and with a different church culture where Sunday was not the Sabbath in kind of the old meaning of that word. And I know that some of you have been surprised when I've not thinking, been, been planned things for Sunday afternoon for the church to do. I want you to know that that's not because I, I don't think that a rest is important. And it's not because I think you shouldn't take Sunday as a day of rest, please hear me if that's your practice it's good and it's holy if, it, if, it, if it's a time for you to reconnect and recharge and focus on God it's only good and you should never ever feel like you need to change it but a Sabbath rest is an opportunity for you to feed your soul to, to connect deeply with your Lord and for you If that looks like having a day of the week that's set aside, you should do that. If it looks like something else, maybe it's a week a month. Or maybe it's a different day because Sunday doesn't actually work out to be a day of rest. It might surprise you to know Sunday doesn't actually end up being very restful for me a lot of the time. The Sabbath command for us is a command to celebrate, remember, and connect with God. We need to develop holy habits because our memory fades. We forget. We lose track of Him in the different aspects of our life. If you're not developing deeper intimacy with God, you are falling away from Him. For us to celebrate and remember the the Sabbath is to connect with holy habits that change us, that mold us, that aid His Holy Spirit and our transformation to be more like Him. So here's my question for you. How do you Sabbath? Maybe you take time every morning with your Bible and Him, and you spend that time connecting, charging, reminding. That's good. In fact, I would encourage you to do something daily if you don't now. Maybe you take the day of Sunday and you don't work. And that's a distinctive for you because that means that every week you have to plan around it, right? You have this time that's devoted to God through and through from wake up to bedtime. It's part of the rhythm of your life and you're reminded of him throughout the day. That is wonderful. What do you do to celebrate and remember Sabbath? I want to encourage you, if your answer is only coming to church on Sunday mornings, you need more than that. You need holy habits that are going to connect you to him in powerful and important ways and you are all different. For some of you, it'll be reading an hour every morning. For some of you, it'll be going on a prayer walk every night that you don't work. For some of you, it'll be spending time with that person who who deepens and encourages your faith. It might be finding a mentor. It might be any one of a thousand things, but it's important that you do something. So that's how I want to leave this today. As we think about the first four commandments, these commands to worship God, to really worship him, they're a call for our focus to come away from ourselves and to rest and settle on him. That's what a Sabbath practice is for you and for me. And so my challenge to you today, if you can't articulate what you do to encourage or feed your soul. That needs to change. It's not a should. It's a need. Because if you're not growing closer to him, you're pulling further away. The human heart was not designed to stand still. So what is your Sabbath? I'd love to hear from you this week. I'd love to know what you do. I'd love to know what you're thinking about doing. But please, if you don't have an answer to that question, this is the time. I want you to make one. I want you to be intentional, and I want you to be formed by time spent in worship of Him. Pray with me. Father God, we come before you thankful for blessings. We love you and we praise you. And we ask that you would call us and encourage us to delight in you, to rest. In you, Because if we can turn our focus to you, Lord, really turn our focus to you, no situation will be able to bring us distress because we will know that you are in control. Lord, change us, mold us, sharpen us, aim us, use us, and make us more like you. We pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.